we come to your word today, we recognize that this world is fading away, but it is so filled with so many problems, so many pains, so many things that feel at times like they are against us. And so we pray, Lord, that you would open the eyes of our heart to behold what you would say to us in those moments where we're overwhelmed by grief or sorrow or sadness or fear, and that you would teach us, Lord, in this time to see that Christ is the answer to all of our needs, that all of our needs are found in him, in looking to him and what he has provided, what you have provided to us through him. May Christ be glorified in this time. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you've got your Bible, go ahead and turn to Psalm 3. Psalm 3 is the psalm that we will be looking at today. The first Sunday of every month, we look at a psalm uh, as a way of keeping one foot in the Old Testament while the rest of the month I'm preaching through John. uh, So that's one foot in the New Testament. So trying to have a foot in each one of the Testaments. All scripture is inspired and profitable for reproof, correction, teaching, training, and righteousness, including the Psalms. And this is a great psalm. It's a morning psalm. If you're not familiar with, with a morning song, it, it's, it's a psalm that you would sing in the morning. Uh, but it's also a psalm about mourning. Uh, not mourning, M-O-R, but M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. <laughs> uh, sadness, sorrow, fear. And for that reason, it's song relevant to every single one of us. Because if you're a Christian, and it doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, it doesn't matter uh, how mature you are in your walk with the Lord, if you're a Christian, there will be times when you will be afraid. There will be times when it'll feel like grief is just overwhelming. There will be times when it feels like everything in the world is against you. You know, I've, I've heard a lot of uh, preachers say things that would, would indicate the opposite, that if, if you're a Christian, that if you're, you're in Jesus, you won't face any difficulties. That is not what the Bible says. It never says that if you're a Christian, you won't face any difficulties. That is a false teaching that's rooted in prosperity theology, which is a lie from the devil himself. In fact, if you're a Christian, it is a virtual guarantee that you will face difficulties, that you will face hardships, that you will go through the refiner's fire. The question is, the question that you must answer, and I would encourage you to have it before it hits, is what are you going to do in those times? What are you going to do when hardships come? I mean, we probably all know what our our inclinations in the flesh would be to do. It's to to mull it over and and to to start overthinking things, overanalyzing things, experiencing panic, experiencing anxiety about it. You know, most of us have probably experienced that. Most of us have at least had a few sleepless nights when we felt absolutely overwhelmed by things like fear and uncertainty. But the question is, how does the Bible instruct us? How does the Bible help us to work through times like that? How will you apply those truths when those times come? So we'll be continuing our study of the Psalms today. 
looking at Psalm 3, and one of the things that I think most people, I don't think I'm alone in this, I think most people uh, like the Psalms for the reason that they really meet us where we are. Uh, when we feel afraid, there are Psalms that deal with that. When we feel re- like we're, we're just overflowing with joy and we want to rejoice, well, the psalmist felt that too. And these things are all reflected in the psalms they're all they're all found in the psalms perhaps because uh, the psalms are poetic and thus they use things like um, exaggeration or hyperbole they use a lot of imagery that reflects what the the authors were feeling when they wrote but it is God's word to us through them in terms of how to deal with all these emotions that we feel as human beings so this psalm that we're looking at today is a psalm that was written by King David. And it's a psalm that he wrote when he was feeling very afraid. In fact, I'd say he was feeling heartbroken when he wrote this. And on the surface, we'd say that he had every right to feel afraid. And he absolutely had every right to feel heartbroken. This This psalm was written at a time when his own son, Absalom, sought David's demise as a king and even his murder. Now, before you start thinking that, okay, well, in my life, I, I'm not facing murder. My son doesn't want to kill me, I, I don't think. Um, so, so this doesn't apply to me. Let me just say this. While it's true that David's problems are not our problems, his answers are our answers. The things, the situations that David was facing, those aren't the situations that we're facing, but the solutions that he found are our solutions His situation is different, but the way that he finds comfort, the way that he finds encouragement, the way that he finds strength is the same way that you and I should be looking for comfort and encouragement and strength. Now, the Psalms don't always flow uh, from one to another in a logical pattern, but sometimes they do, and and, and this is one instance in which they do. Uh, We saw that Psalms 1 and 2 are actually uh, so closely related that it seems probable that Psalm 1 and Psalm 2 were eject and rebel again together. But in Psalm 2, we saw the way that people reject and rebel against the anointed of God, and that's also what we're going to see play out in this psalm, in Psalm 3. And so, therefore, this psalm is very much connected to Psalm 2. But let me just say this before we get started. Whatever you're facing today, whatever you're facing this week, whatever battles you might be facing in your daily life, Psalm 3 is God's voice speaking words of comfort and assurance to you if you have been adopted into his family by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ Jesus alone. It is God, these, the psalm is God pointing you to a picture of a man who felt like everybody in the world was against him and whose world felt like it was absolutely falling apart, who nevertheless found peace. In fact, enough peace that he was able to lay his head down and rest. So let's start with Psalm 3 verses just 1 and 2. If you're, if you're looking at your Bible and you see that there are breaks between verses 2 and 3 and verses 6 and 7, it's because there are three stanzas in this psalm. So we're going to be looking at the first uh, stanza, verses 1 and 2. It says, A psalm of David when he fled from Absalom, his son. O Lord, how my adversaries have increased. Many are rising up against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no deliverance for him in God. Selah. 
Now, as you can see here, this title actually has, or this psalm actually has a title, uh, and we would um, have to agree that the psalm, uh, the title of the psalm is actually an inspired part of the text. Uh, Indeed, it's the first one of the psalms to have a title. It's titled, A Psalm of David When He Fled from Absalom, His Son. It's also the first time that we find the word psalm in the psalms. Uh, The Hebrew word psalm simply refers to a poem that was meant to be sung uh, and played with musical instruments, which is one of the reasons that week in and week out we sing psalms. Uh, Psalms are uh, God's hymnal to his people. They're, They're meant to be played to music. They are divinely inspired uh, they, they are the inerrant word of God, and even though we're singing paraphrases, the theology behind the Psalms is unquestionable because it comes directly from the Psalms uh, in a paraphrased form. The title of this Psalm, though, should cause us to reflect on what happened between King David and his son Absalom. The story is found in Second Samuel uh, chapters 15 and 16, where David was already very well established uh, as his, uh, in his role as king, and he was busy just uh, governing the country, doing all the things that the kings do. Uh, he had been a great warrior uh, early on in his life he, uh, against these surrounding nations, but he didn't expect opposition to come up against him from within Israel and even from within his own family. See, David was a godly man. And David was a godly father, but even being a very godly father, a very godly father, which David unquestionably was, being a godly father is never, ever a guarantee of having godly kids. I mean, if David can have ungodly kids, it can happen to any one of us. But it's not a guarantee. So Absalom for one, was terribly ungodly. First, he murdered his brother Amnon in cold blood, and then he started plotting a way to take over the throne, to take David's throne, to take his father's throne. Now, there are all kinds of stories in in ancient pagan literature and mythology about this kind of stuff happening, but that's in pagan nations. That's not in nations that are faithful to the Lord. But Absalom had a way of charming people, and so he did that. He charmed the people of Israel, and in doing so, he led a revolt against his father. We read in 2 Samuel fifteen six, Absalom dealt with all Israel who came to the king for judgment, so Absalom stole away the hearts of the men of Israel. So, caught totally off guard, all that David could do was run All that he could do was flee for his life, taking whatever loyal friends and whatever loyal leaders that were left with him, and there weren't a whole lot of them. So David fled across the Kidron Valley, went over the Mount of Olives to the safety of the desert. He didn't have time to pack a lunch. He didn't have time to pack his bags. He didn't have time to make any kind of travel arrangement. He didn't even have time to secure a horse, nor did he even have time to put anything on his feet. He went barefoot. He fled barefoot. We read in verse 30, uh, and David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives Then all the people who were with him each covered his head and went up weeping as they went. So David had to rush out of there without taking five seconds to put his shoes on. I mean, what a 
What a heart-wrenching situation. What a horrible situation. One day everything is perfectly fine. Everything feels normal. And the next day everything completely falls apart. You can almost undoubtedly relate to that. We've all had that type of thing happen in one way or another. Everything's fine one day, and then the next day, there's no such thing as normal anymore. Everything changes. Nothing's going to be the same again. Friends, you may not be facing a situation in which you literally have to run for your life, but let me remind you that you are in a battle. You are in a battle. As, as people who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ, we know that we have a literal enemy, the accuser of the brethren, the devil himself, who wages war against our very souls every single day. But even apart from the devil, if you're a Christian, you've got other battles going on. You've got battles going on against the flesh. You've got battles going on against worldly ideologies. The world. And maybe you feel that at work. Maybe you feel that on social media. Maybe the weapons that are being formed against you aren't swords and, and, and weapons of, you know, that, that would actually physically harm you. Maybe it's rumors. Maybe it's slander. Maybe it's misrepresentation or people being partial against you, unfair to you, or dishonest with you. David had scores of people, scores of them, rising up against him all at once. And it became just a, a mob mentality. The, the more joined, the, the more uh, angry they got, the more they started coming after him, and then the more joined. So that there's a snowball effect. Everybody's rising up against him. Now maybe you're not facing scores of people rising up against you, but let me ask you this. How many people does it take to make your life a little bit more difficult? How many people does it take to make your life a lot more difficult? Sometimes just one. Sometimes just one is, is all it takes to cause you to feel fear, to feel anxiety, depending on who it is. Derek Kidner noted in his commentary that, quote, to be in a minority is itself a test of nerve, more so when the minority is shrinking and the opposition is active, end quote. And don't we know it? I mean, if you're paying attention to what's going on in the world, to what's going on in the culture, you know that this is exactly what's going on in America right now. People are calling us a, a post-Christian nation because we're not becoming uh, greater in number, but we are actually shrinking. There are churches that are closing every week. Our numbers as Christians are becoming fewer and fewer. I would say it's a time in which the wheat and the tares are being separated. But people are calling us a post-Christian nation because we're becoming more and more of a minority. And the world is working actively against us. But the mob mentality is on a roll against David here. His enemies have increased, and, and, and they're increasing, and they're not only rising up against him, but they are taunting him with the notion that God will not save him, that there is no deliverance for him in God. And so maybe, just maybe, he's actually starting to believe that lie. I mean, Satan would love nothing more than for one of God's children to lose their hope that they have in God, to lose their confidence that they have in God. And so he whispers this lie in David's ear as he's probably done in your ear before as well. 
Charles Spurgeon said this. He said, quote, It is the most bitter of all afflictions to be led to fear that there is no help for us in God. End quote. And David is a picture of that man. He surveys the battle. Everybody's rising up against him. He's filled with fear. And if his feelings are any kind of indication, the end of the world is, is nigh. It's at hand. And there is nothing that he could do about it. And isn't that a reminder that our feelings just lie to us all the time? What you might be feeling doesn't necessarily reflect what's really going on. But notice how the stanza ends. There, there are three stanzas here. We're looking at them one at a time here. But the stanzas are all separated by the word Selah. And that's one of those words that um, commentators and, and theologians and scholars don't exactly uh, agree on what it means. It doesn't translate directly into English, so there's, there's not a precise meaning to it, but it means something along the lines of pause. Hit the pause button. It means something along the lines of reflect on this. Think about what the psalmist just said. Ponder how you can relate to this. Ponder how this might apply to you. And so before we move on to the next stanza, let's do that. Facing yourself. What is causing you fear, heartache? Because whatever you're facing, that is exactly what God can save you from. But don't think about your problem too long. Don't reflect too long on whatever the source of your fear or or heartache or distress might be because if you focus too long on the details of the battle it's easy to feel overwhelmed by the difficulty or even the impossibility of overcoming it instead i'll urge you to do what david does here what he models for us here he contemplates his situation he surveys the battle scene but then he doesn't focus on them then he turns his thoughts to the one who can win the battle who can handle his enemies, the one who can deliver him through it. He turns his thoughts to God. And as he turns his thoughts to God, as he contemplates the greatness of God, the power of God, the faithfulness of God, the loving kindness of God, the graciousness of God unto him, all of a sudden his problems seem to shrink in size when they're compared to the size of his God. And I would urge you to do the same. Not just today, but anytime you're feeling afraid or hurt or uncertain or overwhelmed by life. Sure, survey, survey the battlefield. Know what you're up against. There's, there's nothing wrong with that, but then don't focus on it too long. Turn your thoughts and your feelings straight to the Lord. Cry out to Him. Call on Him. Think about Him. Think about good theology. Fill your mind with good things about God, biblical things about God, and all the problems of the world will seem so small by comparison. What can he not handle? He can handle anything. So remember that there's no situation that he can't overcome. Remember that there's no situation in your life that he cannot use for your good. Remember that nobody and no thing can thwart God's sovereign will. And remember that he's faithful. Remember that he's faithful. Let's see how God does this, or how, uh, how David does this, how he turns his thoughts to God. Let's look at verses 3 and 4. 
He writes, But you, O Lord, are a shield about me, my glory and the one who lifts my head. I was crying to the Lord with my voice, and he answered me from his holy mountain. Selah. You see that? See how David did that? See how David redirected his thoughts and his attention away from his problems and toward God. I mean, the application here is just right up front for us, isn't it? I mean, no digging required. Uh, It's like a heap of pure gold just sitting there on the sidewalk with a neon sign flashing toward it with arrows toward it saying, free for the taking, here it is, this is the way you do it. But what we so often do is we get distracted and we get anxious and we get fearful about a couple ounces of coal that are sitting between us and what must be thousands and thousands of pounds worth of gold. See, when we compare the size of our problems to the size and the power of our God, our problems seem small by comparison. And when we remember that God is with us and for us, what is there to worry about? Even our our biggest battles, even our greatest fears and anxieties are dwarfed in comparison to how big and how great our God is. And the reality is that nothing in the world is impossible with Him. There is no situation that He cannot overcome. There is no situation that He cannot strengthen you in. And so David's outlook is totally changed just by changing his focus. You see that? I mean, what a difference it makes when we focus our thoughts on God rather than on the ferocity of our enemies or our adversaries or our situation. David's enemies were coming out of the woodwork, even amongst his own people, his own son. And the tribe of Benjamin, them too, yeah, they sprang into action. They had just been waiting for an opportunity to get kind of revenge against him because the tribe of Benjamin is where King Saul came from and David replaced King Saul. No matter. David was not only able to regain his composure, but he was able to stand confidently in the presence of this rising flood of opposition that was coming against him. And why? Why was he able to withstand it? Because David stopped looking to himself for protection, for strategy, for counsel, for good ideas for how to escape. Look what he calls God. He calls him three things. First, he calls him a shield. God is a shield for him. A shield obviously blocks or absorbs the attacks of the enemy, of our adversaries. And David sees God not as, a, not as a one-way shield, not as a shield that only blocks what's coming from in front of him but, uh, and, and things that he's aware of because they're in front of him, but it's about him. The shield is about him, meaning it's, it's all around him, protecting him even from things that he doesn't see coming. See, there, there's an all-sufficient protection that we have in God. He won't allow the foe to prevail, even when it seems like the enemy has prevailed, God has ordained it for his glory and our good. 
Like Joseph said of, of his brothers, when, when, uh, when all was said and done, all the evil that the brothers were holding on to, the guilt that they felt about the evil that they had done so many years ago, and in the end, Joseph says, what you meant for evil, God meant for good. The second thing that David refers to God as is his glory. His earthly crown as, as the king of Israel was not his glory. Isn't that incredible? Isn't, isn't that humble? For, for King Saul, the, the earthly crown that he wore was his glory, but not for David. Not for David. No, God. God alone was David's glory. Know this, friends. The crown that man can give you, man can take away. The glory that man can give you, man can take away. But if God is your glory, his crown, his glory is one which, or, which uh, adorns the soul And it's a glory that no man can take from you. Third thing he says of God here in verse 3 is that God lifts his head. He encourages him. He, He lifts him up. I mean, this is in contrast to what will happen to God's enemies, if you remember back in Psalm 2. Psalm 2, 9 says, You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. Not so with his own children when it comes to God. Not so. See, an ancient king would humiliate a a defeated adversary by placing his foot on his enemy's neck. In other words, keeping life and death in his own power for that defeated adversary. And it was a sign of, of defeat and disrespect and dishonor. But Absalom would not be doing this to David. Instead of David's head being lowered before Absalom, his head would be lifted. His head was raised by God. David called out to God, and God, who is a prayer-hearing and prayer-answering God, heard him and responded. We need to remember, especially in our darkest nights, that God delights in the prayers and petitions of his children, and he never refuses to answer, ever. Although, we should note, that he doesn't necessarily answer in the time or in the way that we think that he should. That's because he's, he's smarter than we are. He knows what, what we need better than we do. Friends, do you know that you have all these things that David had? If you are in Christ, you have all these things, all these privileges We're talking about heavenly blessings here, and we're assured that God has given us every heavenly blessing in Christ Jesus. So this wasn't unique to David's situation. God is still a shield about his people. He's still the glory of his people. He's still the encourager, the one who lifts up the head of his people. And he still hears and responds to the prayers and petitions of his people. If you've never in your life thought about how you need God in these ways, in your darkest nights, Selah. Selah. Take a moment to think about it. Take a moment to ponder how this applies even to you. And know that the same God who heard David will also hear you. And the result of David turning his attention to God is that he's able to get some sleep. Let's look at verses 5 and 6. 
He says, I lay down and slept. I awoke, for the Lord sustains me. I will not be afraid of ten thousands of people who have set themselves against me round about. Now, you probably are aware of the fact that when you are scared for your life, you don't sleep. You don't put your head down to rest when you're afraid of your own well-being. And for anyone who has laid awake in the darkness of the night, tossing to and fro, you know this. You know that when you're filled with anxiety and fear and uncertainty, you know that you can't sleep. But the reason for this is often not that you've had too much coffee. It's not that you had a nap too late in the afternoon. No, there is often a spiritual root to this problem. It's very often, most often, spiritual in nature. And what I've found myself is on the darkest nights when I'm, I'm tossing and, and turning and not able to sleep and filled with uh, anxiety and, and uncertainty, it doesn't take a whole lot of digging into my heart to figure out what it is that I'm not trusting God fully with. It's right below the surface. All I need to do is think about it, is dig just a, an inch or two down, and there it is. The reason David is able to sleep in this situation is because whatever happened, he knew that God is sovereign. He knew that he had done everything that he could do. He had run for his life. He had called out to God. He knew that God had heard him. What else is he going to do? He'd done everything that he could, and so he could just trust God with the results. Trust in God's sovereign goodness. He rested in God's promises. He rested in God's sovereign promises and purposes and what God in his sovereignty had ordained to do. And Now that is not, by the way, always a quick fix. It's often not very easy to say, okay, it's in God's hands, I've done everything I can do, the rest is, is up to him and, and just go to sleep. It's not always that easy. Redirecting our thoughts, redirecting our, our attention, often takes a lot of intentionality uh, from us, a lot of effort from us. But let me ask you this. What is there in your life that God cannot empower you to do? If God wants you to turn your thoughts to him, and he does, and you ask him to, can he not do it? Of course he can. If we ask him for help in turning our thoughts to him, it's a prayer he will answer. Keep praying it until he answers. Keep going until it's there. What kind of earthly father would give his children a stone when they ask for bread, right? And if no earthly father would do that, and we can assume no earthly father would, at least not a good one, we can be certain that God, whose love for us is greater than any father's love, whose goodness unto us is better than, than any father. And he's willing and he's able to do so. How will he not? Of course he will. He will not give us a stone when we ask for bread. Keep asking. Keep asking. One thing we need to add clarification on here is that God is not saying that we shouldn't take action ourselves. Like I said, it's when you've done everything that you can do 
that you can rest. God expects us to act. God expects us to be wise. I mean, David uh, has already fled to a safe distance before he laid his head down. He's already called out to God. He's already prayed out to God before he laid his head down. Second uh, Samuel 17.22 says this. It says, Then David and all the people who were with him arose and crossed the Jordan. And by dawn, not even one remained who had not crossed the Jordan. That's telling us that the first night he didn't sleep. All night. But at some point, after all in his army had crossed the Jordan, he did. So this is not an invitation to do absolutely nothing about the battles that you're facing. If somebody's robbing you, it's not saying that you should just trust in God and do absolutely nothing about it. Trust him to to stop the person who's robbing you. If you're unemployed, it's not an invitation uh, to to just sit around and wait for your dream job to fall in your lap. No, that's the one to be wise. To take whatever action is necessary. To call upon the Lord and to trust in God with the ultimate outcome. And that's exactly what David does in this last section of the psalm. Let's look at verses 7 and 8. David writes, Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you have smitten all my enemies on the cheek. You have shattered the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Now, if you're familiar with... um, the first part of the Bible, the first five books of the Bible, you recognize that David's words here are a war cry. The call, rise up, O Lord, was issued by Moses in Numbers chapter 10, uh, verse 35, where Moses said, rise up, O Lord, and let your enemies be scattered, and let those who hate you flee before you. See, these words that Moses spoke and that David is speaking right here reflected the confidence of God's people that the Lord himself was going before them and would ensure the victory. And in David's situation, that's exactly what God did. God caused Absalom to fail in his attempt to overthrow his father. And before long, a battle took place between those who were faithful to David and those who were uh, on Absalom's side. And the big battle took place and 20,000 men were killed. And Absalom was killed along with them. His hair gets caught in a tree, which left him hanging there and, and vulnerable, helpless. And he was killed by a man on David's side named Joab. God struck down David's enemies. He shattered their teeth. That's, that's an image that a lot of people have a lot of trouble with because it sounds so incredibly violent. Uh, it might seem like kind of a, a gruesome image, but think of the enemy like a lion. That, that's kind of the image here. The enemy is like a lion, but a lion who has been defanged. A lion who doesn't have teeth or claws. What are they going to do? Nothing. They're going to find a ball to chase or something like that. Whatever cats do, whatever big cats do. No, this this enemy is powerless. So it's another way of asking God to render his enemies powerless and thereby remove their power, weaponless. But here's the heart of a father that we see in David's words. Even while he's asking for God to grant him victory over Absalom, He still desired the good of his countrymen, even Absalom. 
He'd give the instruction in uh, chapter 18, verse 5 of 2 Samuel. Deal gently for my sake with the young man Absalom. And look what he says here in verse 8. He says, salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be upon your people. Selah. There it is again. Think about it. God is the one who saves. God is the one who delivers. God is our refuge and our strength in straits of present aid. Therefore, although the world remove, we will not be afraid, right? Psalm 46, when we sing that together. But how does this apply to us? How do we apply this to our lives? Does God guarantee that he will always save us from the clutches of death? Will God always, every time, deliver us from our enemies in a physical, observable, to the outside world way? Well, in the ultimate sense, yes, he will. Yes, he will. Even, even death, even the final enemy will not prevail against us. Our bodies will be resurrected unless Christ returns before God calls us home. But we also have to remember that while Peter was spared from death, Peter was, was spared from martyrdom uh, for a season, uh, James wasn't. James was beheaded. Peter was saved, but Stephen wasn't. See, people aren't martyred for a lack of faith. These were men of great faith. Stephen and James were both men of great faith. In fact, it's often just the opposite. They were martyred because they were men of great faith. Think of all the reformers who were burned at the stake by Bloody Mary, who stood against the church and threatened death to anyone who dared Question her. You might look, and ask, look at that and ask, well, why didn't God rescue them? If these are men of such great faith, why didn't God rescue them? The same question might be asked of Christians who are being martyred in, in Muslim countries today. Why isn't God saving them? The truth is that it often appears as if our enemies win because we're not always delivered from danger in the same way that David was. See, trusting in God and crying out in prayer to God doesn't mean that you won't face difficult circumstances. It doesn't mean that you might not face death. But what we must remember, and the point of crying out to God is often that we will remember by doing so, is that God is God. He's the one who's sovereign over life and death. And because I understand this, because you understand this, you can sleep and know that you can sleep because you understand that he's sovereign over life and death. You understand and know that until he's ready to take you from this world, until your ordained moment of death comes, you are completely safe. You are safe. No weapon formed against you will prevail until God is ready for it too. This past week, I, uh, I get letters from people. I get emails from people who, who listen to our sermons. And I received a, a really touching message from a woman uh, who, who listens to our sermons who has been diagnosed with terminal brain cancer recently. And this is what she said to me. She said a lot, but, but I want to quote this part. Uh, she said, I know that I won't pass from this earth one second before God says my work here is done. She knows that her time is probably near. It would take a miracle. 
But she's got this calm confidence that God is sovereign over life and death. And the amazing thing about this is that she's got a faith that rivals, that's on par with with David's faith. A man after God's own heart. She's got the same confidence that he did. And this is where David's David's confidence was. It was that nothing could happen that God did not ordain. Nothing could happen that God is not sovereign over. If it had been David's time to die, it would have only been because God had ordained that this would be his time. So this understanding, this view of, of God's sovereignty over not only life and death, but also over who's king, who's ruler, is also why David had refused to kill King Saul, even when he had a chance. Last year when Christina was in the hospital and she was so sick and uh, almost dead, almost dying, this was my only hope and comfort too. She's, she's not going home one second, one nanosecond, before God's ordained time for her to go home. I knew that God heard my prayers, but we still acted, by the way. We still brought her to the ER when she was sick. So we prayed, we did what we could. I I knew that God was sovereign over life and death and that she couldn't go home before the time that God had decreed. And so I slept at night. I could sleep at night. I could function. I wasn't paralyzed with fear or uncertainty, even though there was a ton of that. David's people rejected him. They rose up against him. But he's not paralyzed by it. He's comforted by God's sovereignty. And knowing that is what gives David comfort, even though his people rejected him. Imagine going back After all these people have rejected you, what that would be like. After all these people have risen up against you, and you have to be their king. There's another king who is rejected by his people. A king whom David foreshadows, we might say. And that king, of course, is the king of kings. The Lord Jesus Christ, who prayed to the Father, Lord, if you are willing, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me, yet not my will, but yours be done. He did what he could do, and he trusted God with the rest. David's enemies taunted him, saying that there's no deliverance, there's no salvation for him in God. And similarly, when Christ was nailed to the cross, his adversaries said, He trusts in God. Let God rescue him now if he delights in him. For he said, I am the son of God. It's from Matthew 27, 43. And Jesus had a love for his enemies that was foreshadowed by David. David prayed, your blessing be on your people. And Jesus similarly prayed, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Forgive who? Forgive those who had turned against him. Forgive those who had risen up against him. Forgive the rebels. Forgive those who would put the King of kings and Lord of lords to death. And if we understand ourselves, and if we understand God's word, we understand that's us. We would put him to death. Our only hope is in this king against whom we have rebelled and whose commandments we have willfully defied. David was a great king, but he pointed to an even greater king. 
His life pointed to a greater king who offers a greater salvation, a greater deliverance. Salvation from the chains of sin. Salvation from the penalty of sin. Salvation from the power of sin in our lives. And the hope of a future salvation from the presence of sin. Friends, you might face some fierce battles in life. You might be facing a fierce battle even today. You might be betrayed by your closest friends. You might be betrayed by even somebody in your own family. You might face incredible trials. But faith is wrought and refined in the fiery heat of dark nights. Nights filled with anxiety and adversity. You might know intellectually that God is sovereign over life and death, but let me tell you, you might know it up here from what the Bible says, but when it actually happens, you start to believe it more and more in your heart. And when you go through trials, not only are you believing it more and more in your heart, but you're also trusting more fully in Christ through those circumstances. More fully, more constantly, leaning on Him and so thus, with all that in mind, in the midst of the we can sleep, we can rest, even in the midst of the darkest nights, even in the midst of the fiercest storms, knowing that, as, as chapter 5, paragraph 1 of the London Baptist Confession says, it says this, God, the good creator of all things, in his infinite power and wisdom, upholds directs, arranges, and governs all creatures and things from the greatest to the least by his perfectly wise and holy providence to the purpose for which they were created. He governs according to his infallible foreknowledge and the free and unchangeable counsel of his own will. His providence leads to the praise of the glory of his wisdom, power, justice, infinite goodness, and mercy. End quote. See, that's... That's what we need in the dark nights. That's the perspective that David had as he faced his darkest hour. And it's the perspective that you and I need too. When anxiety and fear and grief and sorrow rise up, don't focus on the size of your problems. Focus on the size. Focus on the goodness. Focus on the purposes and the promises of the God who is sovereign over life and death, who is causing all things to work for the good of those who are in Christ Jesus. Do that. And like David, your heart and your mind and your soul will find rest even in the midst of your darkest nights. Let's pray. Our Father, we do thank you for your word and the way that it instructs us, the way that it is a light for us, the way it teaches us, the way it corrects us, the way it trains us in righteousness. Lord, we confess to you that in dark nights, in nights that are filled with grief and sorrow or fear, we so often look to ourselves. We so often focus on the size of our problems and how overwhelming they seem and how impossible it is for us to deal with them. But we thank you for the way that David models a better response, a better way.
that we would turn our thoughts to you. That we would remember how big you are, how good you are, how powerful you are. When we remember that nothing is impossible for you. And that you are sovereign over life and death. And thus nothing can separate us from the love that we have in Christ Jesus. So teach us, O Lord, to remain steadfast in the dark nights. Teach us, O Lord, to turn our thoughts and our our fears over to you. To remember that you are sovereign over it all. We confess of all the times that we have failed to do that. But we trust that you are using every circumstance in our lives to make us more like Jesus. We pray that he would be glorified in our lives, that he would be glorified even in the confidence that we have in the dark nights. In his name. This message has been brought to you by BibleStudyPodcast.org. We are a listener-supported ministry. If this is your first time listening to us, we thank you so much for joining us, and we ask nothing further from you. But if this is a ministry that you rely on for regular spiritual teaching, we do depend on your financial support to keep us going and growing. If you'd like to make a donation to BibleStudyPodcast.org to keep us going and reaching thousands of people around the world, you can go to our website, BibleStudyPodcasts.org, and you can make a donation on the right-hand side by clicking on the support box. Again, we do rely on your support, and we thank you so much for your financial participation in this ministry, which enables us to continue in our mission of teaching timeless truths in these truthless times. God bless you. Thank you so much for listening today and keep growing closer to Jesus. Take me to